pray. Dear God, I just thank you for these two and, and so many. This is a very transient town in many ways. And uh, just thank you for the impact that they've had and the blessing they've been here to us and to this community. And we just pray that as they begin their new life, um, uh, particularly for Pat moving, uh, just that you really open the doors and, and just allow her to settle into that and build those relationships that um, will just be a blessing to her. Uh, we thank you for every person you bring to us. We see so many, uh, either the university or, or the military, that are just uh, with us for a time, and we thank you for each of those people and the gift that they are, or even if they come up for six months for a project. And so we just thank you for that. Ask your blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, so there is an outline in the bulletin. If that's your learning style, you can pull that out if that's helpful to you. And I just want to mention, you know, I think most of you know this about our church. We really try hard whenever the community gets together, whether it's the fair or golden days, we try to be there. We try to be involved. We will have a booth and we'll give away Bibles. And, and I've given many adults, and it always kind of amazes me, their first Bible that they've ever owned. And it's just, it's something we do. We pray for people. Um, actually, the teens are not supposed to leave yet. Yeah, come back. All right, the computer person went rogue, I'm sorry, but uh, uh, the teacher is being interviewed, so they actually need to, uh, so I do need an adult to go up there and hang out with them. Sorry about that, we got our wires crossed, so um, my interview involves Evan, who is the senior high teacher, so we needed to keep them until, um, until that was done, but um, anyway, we, we do go and try to be in the community. And one of the things we do is, is pray for people if they're open to it. Uh, we'll have a prayer box and they can write prayer requests. And at the fair this year, so just back in August, a um, little boy came and wrote a prayer request. And I want you to see what he wrote. Can we show that picture? Hopefully you can read that. And so this is a prayer request about his mom. And a an addiction in her life, a chain in her life. And what's, that's what we're going to talk about today. And the reality is, you may not feel like, well, you have an addiction. And I, I understand that. But I think all of us, even those who have been Christians a long time, almost everybody has a chain in their life. An area of bondage. An area of captivity. And Christ has set us free, but so often we don't walk in that. So often we limp because something's chained up. And I want us to find that freedom. And so I just want us to think about this. So I'd like to have Evan, can you step up here, and Deli. Um, Deli is a, a therapist here in town. She's also my wife. And so we're going to just interview them a little bit. Um, and I think you'll... Deli really loves to get into kind of the origins of some of these strongholds of sins or addictions that we deal with. And I, I just wanted you to hear Evan's story as well. So we're going to ask them a few questions. All right. So we'll, be, we'll ask Evan his questions first. Dismiss you to find the children, right? Round them up, the teenagers, and then we'll talk to Deli. So first is, tell us about an area of bondage or addiction that you have faced in your life. So the deepest area of bondage and affection, that, an affliction that I would say in my life, because there are many, 
Um, but the one that was the biggest stranglehold on my spirit and on my life was alcohol. Uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And, um, but by the grace of God, I've been sober for nine and a half years. And, All right. yeah, yeah, amen. Yeah. And what's interesting is that everyone sees me now and they know me as kind of nice guy Evan, who is kind most of the time and jokes and has a great time and has spiritual insights and, and wisdom into things. And it didn't used to be that way. And that's the thing that's hard for me when I, when I come into a new place is like, I was a blackout drinker for every night of my life for years. I lived in oblivion. I didn't have the capacity to feel the spirit because I was numbed out. Um, and I did some pretty horrible things. And yeah, alcohol. What a, what a killer. Okay. How did your... Um... How did your aha moment or turnaround begin? So I really believe that my aha moment, as I've thought about it, is there came a point when the Holy Spirit pierced through that confusion of um, drugs and alcohol. Because like I said, you're living in oblivion. And God pierced through that, and he kind of explained to me in my own thoughts that I had drank away every good thing that I had ever had. Um and that this was it. This is the rest of your life until you die young. That you will never have a family. You will never be prosperous. You will never succeed. And that's it. That's what you got. And it scared me to the point where I said, I will literally do anything to escape that. And so I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. That, not that day because I was too hungover. But the next day... And, um, and, and then when I was there, it was my second meeting. The third step of Alcoholics Anonymous is you surrender your life and will over to the care of God. So you have to surrender your life and will over to God. And everyone's sharing about it comes to me and I just start weeping, which I was not thrilled about at the time. And so here I am, I'm just crying in this room full of like salty old drunks and you know, not the foot you want to lead with, but I'm just bawling. And it comes out of me that I had spit in the face of God so many times. And there's a lot more to that story that I'm keeping for brevity. I had spit in the God, face of God so many times that he was done with me. And I was alone. I didn't doubt my salvation, but I believe there would be a time like when I got to heaven, he'd be like, here's a nice corner for you to stand in while we all, you know, party. And I was alone. And there was no help for me, and it terrified me. And so after the meeting, I was out in the parking lot smoking a cigarette, and the Holy Spirit of the living God spoke into my heart. And all he said to me was, I have brought you here. How can you say that I don't care about you? And that was it. That was when I knew God kept me alive, because I have a lot of I, I one step to the right, and I would have died stories. God kept me alive, and he brought me to a place where I could recover, where recovery was possible. And that was when I really had a spiritual awakening, where I truly surrendered, and I've been sober ever since. All right. You've already gotten into that, but how, does God, how did God help you in breaking this chain in your life? For me, it's supernatural. 
Um, I, I had a spiritual problem that only God could fix. I mean, you've heard people say you have a God-sized hole in your heart. And God did all of it. And I firmly believe that. I did not rescue myself from bondage. So there you go. What, what advice would you give to a person facing a stronghold of sin or an addiction? To quote the book of James, don't kid yourself. We'll start there. Don't, like, addicts are the masters of rationalization. I mean, we could rationalize anything for life. Don't kid yourself. You have a problem. And it's shutting you off from the sunlight of the Spirit. And once you're ready to admit that you have a problem, and it, I mean, I, it could be a lot of things. I mean, it could be alcohol, it could be drugs, uh, it could be pornography, it could be rage, it could be work. Whatever it is that's keeping you from living in the Spirit, you don't kid yourself. And then come to us. Don't doubt that God loves you. Don't allow this to become spiritual blackmail in your life where you are afraid to approach the throne of the Lord because you're like, one day when I get clean enough, then I'll go to God. It doesn't work like that. You come to the Lord and I promise you, he loves you now and he will heal you. I promise, I guarantee it. And so come to us and say, hey, I have this problem and be willing to accept our solutions. You know, when we're like, okay, bud, uh, you know, you're going to have to start going to... to Meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. You're like, I don't want to go. Like, well, you're going. Accept the solutions because your way of thinking has not helped you up to this point. And so, yeah, that, that's my long version. One, don't kid yourself. Two, come to us. And three, allow the Spirit to help you. And I guess that would be my three. Okay. One other resource I'll just let you know about in case you're not aware. Uh, there is a men's accountability group meets here every Saturday, 7 a.m. Um, on the back of the Bolton, you'll see David Kayempa. That's the phone number that you call, and you, you are to call first and talk to him, and um, you can go to that group, and it can be helpful, particularly issues like pornography and just some of the things that men struggle with. So that's a resource that is available here, and um, there's certainly um, some others around town. There's a couple um, Celebrate Recovery groups, and I can, if you want to talk about that, we can point you in that direction. So I'm going to let you go find the teenagers. Um, yeah, yeah. And then I'll talk to Deli, but go ahead. <clears throat> All right, give him a hand. Thank you for sharing with us, Evan. And so uh, Deli is a, is a, now the teenagers can go. What's. Okay. Um, now the teenagers can go, if they came back in. And I'm uh, going to talk to Deli a little bit. She is a therapist. If you're not aware, she is also my wife, uh, which I say saves me quite a bit of money. But uh, anyway. <laughs> and she kind of approaches things, loves to get into the origin of stuff, and kind of from the lens of attachment. So uh, my first question for you is, is, in your opinion, as an attachment therapist, what is one cause or potential reason for addiction or these real strongholds of sin. So, so they're back there in the sound booth telling me to scoot over. Um, so, yeah, um, is is that good? Am I am I good? Thank you. All right, okay. you're welcome. 
So um, for those of, who, of you who maybe have heard me talk or go to the Thursday night group, maybe none of this is new to you, so sorry about the repetition here. But um, so my thought is, and just to be clear, I, I don't have an addiction, so to speak, of drugs, alcohol, or porn, or any of that stuff, um, but I certainly have my stuff. So um, when you look at the origins of that stuff, uh, when you look at a newborn baby, the very first thing any infant in the world needs is four things. They need to be seen, they need to be safe, they need to be soothed, and they need to be secure. So the very first thing we're going to do with an infant is see it. Uh, we're going to swaddle it, we're going to clean it, we're going to feed it, we're going to do skin-to-skin -skin contact. And in the seeing of it, we are going to soothe that baby, that infant. Um, I, am, I imagine the ordeal that he or she just went through was quite traumatic for that child, and they are going to be very escalated. Their limbic system is going to be completely lit up. They're probably going to be in some form of trauma or escalation um, out of their window of tolerance, um, out of anything familiar that they've ever known. So they are going to need to be seen, soothed, safe, uh, and in the meeting their needs and soothing them, they are, we are creating safety for them. And out of that seen, soothed, safe place, which we will do thousands of times over in the next um, 3, 5, 10, 20 years, of their life, we create a secure environment for them. And out of that secure environment, they start venturing out to the living room, to the front yard, to kindergarten, to um, high school, to basketball camp, to college. They just keep going further out and further out, but they continually come back. So um, they create this rhythm of, of going and coming, and you can see rhythm in everything from the universe all the way down to the smallest atom. There is rhythm in what we do. So in the seeing, soothing, keeping them safe, we create a secure environment, and out of that secure environment, their needs are met. Um, and they reach for attachment. Instantly, they reach for attachment. They reach for something. Um, and when we see them, we are there, we are responding, we meet the need, and they de-escalate. So that is the origin of the way it's supposed to work. Um, and they are brought very quickly back in their window of tolerance. If you look at a child, you know, part of what we do, a, a baby has no window of tolerance whatsoever. They are not able to regulate. They have zero tolerance level for any level of distress, whether they're cold or hungry or lonely or just whatever they need to be entertained. Um, they have zero ability to tolerate any distress. And what we do as parents is as we meet their needs, we then help them to grow and increase their ability to tolerate distress because life is stressful and distressful. So we increase their window of tolerance for distress and you know, working on it, um, even with my infants, I always loved having a value that I was working towards, whether it was delayed gratification or patience or honesty or whatever it might be. But um, we work on um, regulating that child. We co-regulate them, they cannot regulate themselves. And in regulating them, we help broaden their window of tolerance um, their ability to cope with stressors. So, for instance, you might imagine a toddler who's really, really hungry banging on the high chair. You can broaden that window of tolerance simply by talking with them to regulate, telling them, making sense of what they're feeling. I know you're hungry. I know, I know I'm coming. And you're communicating with them. And as you're coming, you're saying, I know, you're hungry, just a minute. And so you're prolonging it. And as you sit down, if you want to continue prolonging it, <clears throat> excuse me, you can say something like, all right, let's calm down, let's, let's put our hands down, or just a minute, let's put your bib on. You are increasing their level of tolerance, or as you say, okay, 
Now let's pray. You are helping them tolerate distress. And we will do that a thousand times plus over their childhood as we will help them tolerate distress, broaden their window for tolerance, um, help them learn to not just come to us because we are their regulators, but they come to us. They also learn to hear our voice and regulate themselves throughout the week or whenever it is. Um, you know, when your kids are off to college, they can hear your voice saying, it's okay, I'm here, you got this, you'll be okay, you can figure it out. So that is ways we help regulate our children and so they can then start to regulate and, and um, practice uh, tolerance themselves in regulating themselves. Um, so what we do is we often actually live outside of our window of tolerance and most of us don't realize we are outside of our window of tolerance a lot of the time we go into fight, flight, or freeze, or collapse, which is a trauma response. And so often what we will think is just, oh, this is just how I am. We are typically, when we are offline, we are outside of our window of tolerance and we don't actually have the skills to manage it right then. Um, and yeah, and so, and I think I did not realize for the longest time, you just think, oh, this is just me. No, this is you outside your window of tolerance without the ability to regulate your own emotions so we go offline. And can you make sure, um, you use the phrase window of tolerance quite a bit, can you just, what does that mean? Just clarify that, just to make sure. So the window of tolerance that we all experience um, is the range of emotion that we can tolerate in life, um, that we can experience before we go into our fight, flight, or freeze response, before we go offline. Window of tolerance, so if you take a one to 10 range, the the sweet spot is four, five, six, and seven, right in the middle. And when we are in that range, that four, five, six, and seven, we are regulated, we are calm, we are de-escalated, our prefrontal cortex is open, our left and right brain is communicating, our limbic system is de-escalated, our brainstorm, our brainstorm, our brain stem is calm, and uh, we are we are not escalated or in in a trauma response. That is, that is what the window of tolerance means. It means we have access to our prefrontal cortex, which is our um, executive processing place. And so think about the times that you go, I, I can't even come up with a name. I, I've lost all my nouns. I can't put a sentence together. Or I can't even make sense of what I'm doing. That is because your prefrontal cortex has gone offline and you are now in a trauma response and you can't make sense of what's happening. Um, and so the window of tolerance is how much, how much we can tolerate before we go to one of those places. Okay. So how does one get into their window of tolerance and regulate their emotions? So we, it's really important that we recognize what's happening. And the window of tolerance, again, that 1 to 10 uh, range of emotions, the, when you're in the middle and you're balanced and regulated, that can look like you are competent, relaxed, content, balanced, rational, hopeful. Um, you can take risk. You can be creative. We cannot be creative if we are out of our window of tolerance. It's just not going to happen. Uh, we don't come up. We're not playful. We don't laugh um, unless it's an anxious laugh. But we are not in our, any kind of creative space at all. Um, and so when we're, when we're balanced, when we go into the hypo, the one to three, what that will look like is we get sluggish, we get exhausted, we get foggy, we get zoned out, numb, shut down, disconnected, we fall asleep, uh, we become hopeless or helpless, and we can go into despair. 
And I can get a, a despairing feeling just almost, you know, any time throughout the day. If something triggers me, I can just go into this sense of despair. And if you don't know where you're going or that you're going offline, it's not going to matter. You're just going to think, what's wrong with me? So that is the 1 to 3. The, eight, the uh, 8, 9, 10 over the top is I feel overwhelmed, angry, rage. I have anxiety, panic attacks. My heart uh, rate is increasing. I get shaky. I'm trembling, loss of control. That's where we get panic attacks, road rage, um, all those things that are out of the top um, and, and um, escalated. So part of that is, is we need to understand what is happening in our bodies and when our prefrontal cortex is offline, we are not connected to our bodies. We are not experiencing this as far as being aware of it. Um, so ideally we learn uh, about our window of tolerance and how to regulate from our parents. That is where we learn that, that, uh, that skill set. Um, we learn to co-regulate with each other. So we can co-regulate with our parents, we can co-regulate with our siblings, with our coworkers, our spouses. We are all actually here co-regulating together and there is, I don't, I don't know how many people are here, but every one of you has a limbic system and we are actually regulating with our limbic systems here. So what internally our, our, our brainstem and our amygdala, all of that internally is de-escalated, but if everybody here was highly anxious, nobody would be regulating anybody, right? Um, so part of this is we regulate with each other, and we have to move into community to be able to get into our window of tolerance. Um, you know, we say things to each other like, I'm here, I gotcha, just give me a call, I have your back, we say those kind of things, um, you're okay. One of the concepts I've just recently learned, and I love this, is that when God came to earth in the form of a human body, he came with a limbic system. And that was a new thought to me just recently, that he did not just come with words or even actions or compassion. He came with a limbic system that was de-escalated. And so if you've ever been around anybody with an escalated limbic system, it is not fun. It is, even if they are presenting very calmly out here, you sense the hyper arousal and how distressful that can be. Um, so we learn to uh, reach for relational connections um, and, and to get those responses to help us manage that. That is how we learn to regulate. Okay, final question. What are some suggestions um, you would offer for someone struggling with a deep sin issue or even an addiction? I think you skipped a question. Nope. Well, I have a lot more answers. Go to the last one. That's where we are. I got stuff. Well, so, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm out of my window of tolerance. Um, and there you have it, right? There you have it. Um, It'll be okay. It's fine. So when we do not have capacity to tolerate our stress, we get out of our window of, of tolerance, right? Um, and everyone reaches for something. So when we talk about addictions, Kurt Thompson, who I adore, um, he says that addiction is anything that leads to instant gratification. Anything that leads to instant gratification with my mind or my body. Um, as opposed to moving towards a relationship. So an addiction does not have to look like alcohol, drugs, or porn. It can look like isolation. It can look like taking a nap. It can look like um, uh, 
it can look like food, it can look like control, it can look like organization, it can look like approval, workaholism, uh, getting connected to adrenaline, cortisol. These are all things you can do on your own without another person, without vulnerability. And when we move towards anything that allows us to manage ourselves without vulnerability, that is not always an addiction, it's not always wrong, but it is starting to border on that. He says, anything I'm doing that I can do by myself that leads away from flourishing starts to wander into the territory of addiction. So think about those of us who maybe move towards control or organization or food. We can do all of that by ourselves. And that leads into, wanders into the territory of addiction. Um, he says, all sin is misdirected desire, and Scott Peck talks about the avoidance of pain is the beginning of all unhealthy behavior. We work really hard to avoid pain. So the need uh, to be validated in answer to his question of what would I suggest is that, first of all, please know that every need you ever have is a valid one. It gets to matter. It is not invalid. It's just what we do in trying to meet that need is what Scott Peck's talking about is that then becomes dysfunctional. That then becomes um, perpetuating the cycle of, of uh, being toxic, of getting dysregulated, of, of all the things that keep us stuck. Um, so my suggestion is, I have a couple, is consider doing the hard work of being curious about your story. Um, being curious about how you got to, to where you are, to what's going on that you do the things you do. Um, being aware of when you get dysregulated, when you get out of your window of tolerance, when you reenact your story. And that's the thing about we don't get healed just for the sake of being healed or just for the sake of having a nice life. We don't experience healing simply for the sake of freedom. We need to go on and, and, and do the work we're designed to do. Um, Adam Young calls it ruling our kingdom because we all have a kingdom to rule, whatever that might be. So we are healed to go on and do the work of our kingdom um, and, and, and to flourish. Um, so consider doing the hard work that gets you stuck, that keeps you stuck in your story. Know when you dysregulate. Be aware when you're out of your window of tolerance because you're going to reach for something. Every one of us reaches for something, and if we don't understand why we're reaching for it, we will keep reaching for it if we don't understand why we're reaching for it. Um, I, I, I got, and there's many times yesterday I could tell I was out of my window of tolerance. I could tell I was getting dysregulated, that I was reenacting my story of trauma, and um, I felt it just last night. I was getting ready to go to bed and starting to wind things down and trying to get all my work done. And I came downstairs and my son, he's gone so I can tell the story. I came downstairs and he had started something new that he got inspired with and had started dumping a basket and moving furniture. And I, all, I just went, I, I could just feel I, I got dysregulated immediately. And so I had to kind of say, honey, wh what are you doing? What, what are you doing? And it just triggered me pretty intensely, but I was really aware I knew exactly what was happening, I knew exactly why I went there. Um, so, and I'm sure there's lots of moms out there that can identify with that. So part of this is knowing why you do what you do. Um, understand what's driving your behavior. The big place about knowing your story and understanding what that is, is um, Adam Young, you might want to write that name down. Adam Young has a podcast, he, it's called uh, The Place We Find Ourselves. If you go to either episode one or 33, he has a podcast on your story and how important it is and why you need to know it. Um, I just saw, I got an email yesterday that he is having a Zoom class coming up in November. It is November 19 that you can join online and write your story. Um, it seems pretty intense, but he is all about your story, telling your story. 
Um, and so if you want to either listen to his podcast or take his class, you can do that. Um, it's called Understanding Your Story Workshop. The other thing you can do if you don't want to join a Zoom class or listen to podcast, go to um, Amazon, order Dan Allender's book called To Be Told. You can get a book and a workbook. And that is your story, To Be Told, is, your, is uh, the, the course. And honestly, Adam Young quotes Dan Allender a lot. They work a lot together, Kurt Thompson. These are names you'll start hearing a lot if you, if you do this kind of work. Um, but uh, To Be Told, uh, the podcast, the place we find ourselves, as well as, well as um, the upcoming Zoom class with um, Adam Young. So that would be my recommendation to you. Because as we find out our story and figure out why we do what we do, we get to the root of all of our addictions, whether it's control or um, food or uh, isolation or math or porn, I don't care. We get to the root of it and we figure out why we do what we do. And that is really what's driving the behavior. So um, that would be my encouragement. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Well, we'll do. Okay. Well, yeah. We'll just do it later. So just I'll make to sure and catch you after, sir. Yeah. Just um, to give you an example on the story, you know, I was reading about a couple, and anytime they would get in a fight, the husband would go get in the car and just drive away. And he'd go drive around for a few hours, and he'd eventually come back. And, you know, he sat down with somebody, and they said, well, tell me your story. And his story was that his father had a serious, serious temper. Um, I think alcoholism was involved. And so the way he coped as a child was he would just get out of the house whenever dad showed anger. And particularly if he could get out at the beginning, then he missed the big incident that was going to happen with the family. And so as a, as a child, he would do it, you know, on his bike. And then when he became a teenager, if, you know, dad started down that road, he hopped in his car and, and he would go drive around. And so it would make sense when his wife would get angry. As soon as he, he registered, this is what I do. Well, once he understood that, you know, and that's just learning your story then he could go, oh, this is what this is. This is this old coping mechanism, and I need to actually stay and deal with this so that I'm not you know, making it worse with the wife because he can't stop and have a confrontational, challenging uh, argument or conversation. So anyway, that would just be one example of that. Uh, your story is very valuable, and God is working, and you'll see God's hand in that story. So... As we dig into this, um, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He does not want us to live in bondage. He does not want us to live in chains, whether it's something we consider or our society considers an addiction, or whether it's something that our society pats on the back. Um, you know, we literally, as a country, have serious issues with this. We have about 5% of the world's population, and yet Americans make up about 25% of the world's prison population. Um, so we have lots of people living in literal chains. About every three weeks in the United States, um, we have as many people die of an overdose of some kind as they did on 9-11 at the World Trade Center uh, in those terrible terrorist attacks. And so we have lots of sexual sin running rampant. We have all these things, these chains that wrap up so many people. 
Now, what you have to be careful of, particularly if you have like a background like my background where you grew up in church and um, you never, you know, never had this huge open season of rebellion, is you can be very, it can be very easy to get sucked into the chain of pride or self-righteousness and you look at, say, drug addiction and go, well, those people. And so you have to be very understanding of your own chains. And even longtime Christians, often there's an area or two of bondage that needs to be dealt with. I mean, just let me throw out something that's totally in our culture, and we see it all the time. Stop and think about the fact, I was reading, that the average American checks their smartphone about 150 times a day. That's about every six minutes. Now that sounds and kind of looks like addictive behavior. Have you sat at dinner in a restaurant and looked around? You know, how many couples actually are engaging with each other? Or who's just sitting there on the phone? And so, we are crying out to be good, to be holy. We are designed to live free, to live in a way that brings honor to God. Um, I love Romans chapter 6, verse 4. It's a it's an image uh, drawn from when we baptize someone. And it says this, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may, have, may live a new life. So as you, as you uh, dunk them under the water, you're being connected, identified with the death of Christ. As you bring somebody up, it's the idea being connected to the resurrection and the idea of a new life. You're on a new trajectory. You're headed in a new direction. And yet, almost all of us still have some areas in our lives that have some chains. And so we need help. So I want to use that acrostic this morning, H-E-L-P. And the first is, H is for the Holy Spirit. And we heard Evan talk about that a lot, about him. Um, I think it was probably confusing for the apostles, but listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 7. Because there's, I think there's a tendency, at least in my background, to um, minimize maybe the importance of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. And in John 16, 17, Jesus says to those closest to him, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. And the Advocate's the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus says something startling here. He says, look, to these folks who had walked alongside of Jesus for three, three and a half years, it is better for you to have the Holy Spirit come and dwell within you than for him physically to walk beside him, beside them. And I think that they probably were scratching their heads. And, and so it is better. We're given the Holy Spirit. And he does a work in us that's absolutely incredible. I love Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. And it's a prophetic picture of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. That's on Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor Notice he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And as Deli kind of got into um, the origin of these deep strangleholds, strongholds of sin in our lives, maybe reach the level of addiction, um, it's because of brokenheartedness. It's because you're, you're listening, you're hearing, well, that's what I was supposed to get from my parents, but I didn't. 
to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Freedom for the captives. He wants us to be free. He wants us to walk in that wholeness. I love Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27, where we have this promise of the Spirit. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live a holy life. We can walk in partnership with him and we can grow better. We can uh, be better this year than we were last year. We can move forward in this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the Apostle Paul talks about at the end of this verse that we are to be filled with the Spirit. Inviting the Spirit to be in our lives um, to, you know, every day. You know, There's this permanent gift of the Holy Spirit we're given at salvation, but there's this filling of the Spirit. You know, Hey Lord, have more of me. Because most of us have areas that we haven't quite submitted to the Lordship of Christ. We've signed on the dotted line. We've said overall... But there's, there's this area I'm still kind of holding on to. And being filled with the Spirit is, is allowing His control over our lives. It's taking on new management. I think of the idea of a trolley. We don't have them here in Fairbanks, but in some cities they have trolleys. And trolleys are these vehicles you can ride on, and you've probably seen them. And, and they're uh, connected. Um, they're touching. They're riding, you know, kind of uh, connected to this power line above the trolley. Now, if you get them off the power line, they're not going to go anywhere. They're not going to make any progress. And so they have to be connected to the source of power. Kind of sounds like Jesus when he says, you know, without me, you can do nothing. Or I'm the vine and you're the branches. That we're connected. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can move forward. Also, the thing about a, a trolley is the trolley, you know, you have to go the way of the power, right? You're supposed to go that direction or you lose all power. And so when we go off on our own way, we get in real trouble there. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I think, points to the radical nature of this submission, this surrender to God. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You can't really, I mean, to use the image here, you know, you could do a lot of things, you know, to take your life, but you can't crucify yourself. You can't do that literally. And that's the image that Paul is giving. We have to be in partnership with the Holy Spirit in order to crucify that selfishness that we all have. I never had to sit my five children down and say, okay, kids, we're going to have a little lesson on selfishness and how to give yourself above your brothers and sisters. No. They knew that. And, and so we want to see as we submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, walking in partnership with the Holy Spirit, that that crucifixion, that tomb becomes a place of transformation. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, I find this encouraging and also a little convicting. It says this, the Apostle Paul, and his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And when you look at this, there's five different Greek words used in this little section of scripture. And it's almost like the Holy Spirit is using you know, every possible word in the Greek vocabulary to connotate power. There is power 
that is available to us through this partnership with the Holy Spirit. He shows us the truth. He shows us and reveals to us what is actually happening. You know, we have a culture that, uh, you know, calls evil good. That's the culture we're living in now. And the Holy Spirit has to bring us conviction, has to point us to the Word of God and, and lift it to us and apply it to our lives and help us to see the truth of it, to see the darkness that so many of us have embraced. Jerry Vines, a Christian author, talked about going to a, a school party when he was a teenager, and he said he was walking in the dark, and a car came by and splashed him. And he knew he'd gotten splashed, and he thought, well, i got just a little bit of mud on me. But when he got to the school, which was just right after this incident, he walks into the light of the school, and he looks, and he is just covered in mud. And the Holy Spirit does that. The culture may say, well, this isn't a big deal, or that's not a big deal, or this isn't really sin anymore. We voted, and it's no longer sin. And the Holy Spirit says, let me show you the truth. And it can be uncomfortable, but it's the truth, and that's what we need to deal with. It's interesting, they did an experiment around Halloween time, and this psychiatrist, um, he had these, you know, all these kids come for trick-or-treating, and he had kind of this like front room porch thing. And so they could go in and there was a sign that said, get one piece of candy. And so he, you know, had tons of kids would come through. And so um, when um, they just went in and saw the sign and, you know, one piece of candy, a lot of them took more than one piece of candy because, you know, there's no real consequence immediately. But then he did something just to see. And so he put a mirror right behind the candy. So you have the big sign, one piece of candy, and but then the kids had to watch themselves grabbing a handful. And overwhelmingly, those kids just took one piece of candy. And the Holy Spirit does that in our lives, primarily through the Word of God, but also through the conscience and the conviction. And so He helps us to live better, to live in the way God wants us to live. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writes, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So many ways that we cannot think like our culture. We have to move from a victim mentality to a personal responsibility mentality. We have to be people who think biblically and not just soak in the media, and the teaching that's all around us all the time. I want to be really clear here that I believe the Christian life is, I don't think it's difficult. I think the Christian life is impossible without the partnership of the Holy Spirit. Go read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's a gut check of what we're called to how we're called to live. It's impossible without the partnership of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the H in help. The E in help is to endure, um, that we're called to endure, that there's going to be challenges to this. You definitely hear miracle stories where maybe you have a real struggle and God takes away even the desire. And, and that is wonderful. And the Lord does do that sometimes. I had a good friend who had, he said, I came to Christ. He said, I had three major addictions. He was a big time smoker. Um, he was into drugs. 
uh, you know, various drugs, and he said, um, and pornography. And he said, I came to Christ, and he goes, God took away very graciously. I had no desire to do the drugs again. I had no desire to smoke. He said, but the porn, I have been duking that out for years. And so I want you to understand that often we are called to endure. That's the E in help. We are called to persevere. You may have something that you're really wrestling with. And you're like, really, I have to go after this again? I failed three or four times. And so it's so crucial that we do this. God gives us growth usually over time. I mean, we see it in the natural world. Uh, I'll never forget uh, one time Jackson, our, our 20, he's 24 now. He's a little guy. And they went to my parents' house. And um, mom had taken him out, and she had these flower seeds, and, and she, he wanted to plant them. And so um, she you know, took him out there, and he planted these seeds kind of by the mailbox. And then she and him went off, I think it was to the Children's Museum in Indianapolis. So they're gone for several hours. And then they come back. Well, while they were gone, my dad, my, my, you know, his grandfather, my father, did not know. But he had decided to put flowers um, around the mailbox. And so they left for three, four hours, come back, and there's these full-grown flowers. And Jack was like, yes! <laughs> and my mom was like, oh, no. And we want God to do that, right? And sometimes he does. But that's not how he normally works, at least in my experience. And so we have to endure. I love a name. Uh, Maxi Filler is his name. Great lesson on endurance. He went, he wanted to be a lawyer, took the California bar exam in 1966. He was 36 years old. He ended up taking the California bar exam 47 times before he passed. He was 61 years old. He's working as a law clerk for, for his two sons who had gotten law degrees in the time. He was a terrible test taker. That was the big issue. And he just had a terrible time with it. But he was persistent. He endured. I mean, imagine, imagine what it took for him to go take the bar exam for the 41st time, or the 46th time, and yet he did. And when it comes to breaking chains, there needs to be a persistence. There needs to be that endurance. We're called to come at this over and over again. There's great value in persistence. You know, we have five children. I've watched them all learn how to walk. They all do it the same way. Walk a few steps, fall down. Get up, walk a few more steps, fall down, get up. That is the way they endure, and that's how they grow, and that's how they learn to walk, and that's how they learn to run. And so it's absolutely crucial that we get this. If we want to be whole, if we want to be free, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit, that's the H, and we want to endure, that's the E. It's kind of our part. The L in help is for the love of God. When you're wearing a chain, often accompanying that chain is shame. And so you need to be a person that understands and gets the love of God. What he, how much he loves us. At the heart of our faith is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He loved the world. He loved us in our 
in our wickedness, in our rebellion. Romans 5.8, similar idea, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We had not earned it. We did not deserve it. We deserved to be punished, and instead he loved us. He offered us that. Or one of my favorites is 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, that he makes us his sons and his daughters. I love that. If we truly believed that God deeply, passionately, and sacrificially loved us, it would begin to transform us. That's the L in help. The P in help is partners are essential. Partners are essential. John John Eldridge said this about people. He said, all people or everybody has a gravitational pull. And they do. They either pull you down or they pull you up. They either pull you back or they pull you forward. We've got, you know, over a decade in uh, North Star, halfway house ministry, recovery ministry. And we watch as people will make progress and begin to move forward. And then they allow somebody in life, in their life, a boyfriend, a girlfriend who's still using or, or whatever, has these bad habits, and we'll watch them just get pulled right back down. Everybody in your life has a gravitational pull, and you need to get honest about that pull. You need to think about it. You need partners who are allies. And sometimes you have to make hard choices here. It is absolutely crucial that you walk and live in community and that you have these allies and partners. I love the story in John chapter 11 of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He calls Lazarus from the dead. He does what only he can do. And Lazarus comes out. He's still wrapped in his grave clothes. And then he says this, John eleven forty four: The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus did what only Jesus can do, but it was in community that his grave clothes were unwound and unwrapped. It's in community that the chains begin to come off. It's in vulnerability. It's having partners who are actually allies. Everything in you, when you have a, a, an addiction or a stronghold of sin in your life, everything in you wants to isolate because it's embarrassing. Lean in to your community. Find that mentor. Go see a Christian therapist. Get into that uh, transformative small group. Find a way. In the New Testament, there's all these one another scriptures. Bear one another's burdens. All these different things. Do life with others. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, 10, and 12 says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Either, if either of them falls down, one can help the other. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, tells us to spur one another on. I love that. That, That's got a little bit of a poke to it, right? That's convicting somebody. That can be a little difficult. But it also goes on in that, in verse 25, about encouraging one another. So offer both conviction and comfort, and we do that for each other. It is so crucial that we have partners in our lives. They are essential, and they help us to move forward. 
I think of Moses in the Old Testament. Moses, here he was, one of the greatest leaders ever. He's leading maybe a million people who were slaves in Egypt. Leads them through incredible display of the miraculous. And here he has them out in the wilderness. And here comes his father-in-law. And he kind of walks him around, shows him all that he's doing. He thinks father-in-law will be impressed. You know, you, know, you want your father-in-law impressed, right? And his father-in-law was not impressed. He's like, you're going to burn out. I mean, this is a really loose translation, but that's the idea. You're going to burn out. What you're doing is not good. And so he offers some correction to Moses. And Moses, this phenomenal leader, to his credit, takes it and makes some changes that made the nation better and made his life better and probably saved his family life, and it made a huge difference. He shared some of the loan of the load. Don't try to change alone. You need to walk in partnership with the Holy Spirit, but also in partnership with other people. You need to allow a few people in. Just as an iceberg, we, most people only see the, the top above the waterline, maybe 10, 20%, and that 80, 90% is below the waterline. You have to let a few people in below. Find someone in your life who is healthy in that area and connect with them. See if they'll walk beside you. So the big idea is this. Jesus, we invite you to break some chains. Make us testimonies of your transformation. Jesus, we invite you to break some chains. Don't we want to be transformed? Don't we want to be free? And then I just want to give you kind of a little visual as they do the closing song. As you walk out of here, there's a little chain on every chair. I appreciate Kent Baker and Evan um, they were our journey chain gang, and they cut these. took a while. But I want you to think, you know what this is. What is this in your life? I don't know. Is it control? Is it workaholism? Is it porn? Is it, I don't know, resentment, unforgiveness? I don't know what it is. You know what it is. And as they come and lead us in that final song, I want you to think about as you leave here today, there's a, there's a metal container on that high table when you first came in, if you're ready to hand that chain to God, to invite him into breaking that chain in your life, I encourage you to do that on your way out. But let's also be honest, you may not be ready. And so I encourage you to stick it in your purse, put it on your desk, put it somewhere where you can see it, it can be kind of a prod. I still have this chain in my life and I haven't quite decided to work on this again. I'm not quite ready to tackle it again. Jesus, you remember the man who was paralyzed at the pool of Siloam. And here he is, and it, it almost sounds rude, but Jesus, you know, here's this guy, decades, decades of bondage. And he says, do you want to be well? And you've got to answer that question honestly. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to invite God into your life to break some chains. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. Lord, there are struggles. There is weight in this room. There are chains. Lord, there's, there are things that we need to try one more time. Lord, we thank you for your partnership of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that, that this life, this call is not just on us. That like a sailboat, we yes, we trim the sails, but you provide the wind. Your Holy Spirit is the power source for us to move forward, to experience the freedom of traveling at the speed that you desire for our lives. 
Lord, this is our prayer, that you would transform us, make us trophies of your grace. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.